Grace and peace to you all, and welcome to the Calvary Road with Pastor Sam Allen. The picture is not just a negative, you know, you've got to let them go because they're in bondage and they're suffering and they're serving you, but no, a positive. I want them to feast with me. I want them to worship me. I want them to serve me. And there's a direct parallel to our experience in the Lord. We've been set free from the bondage and slavery of sin and Satan so that we can worship the Lord, so we can fellowship with the Lord. Today, we have a new two-part study from Pastor Sam entitled, The Lord's Supper. We are now in Luke chapter 22, and we are looking at the goings-on and the meaning behind Jesus' final Passover meal, which we call the Lord's Supper. So, let's listen in. Let's turn in our Bibles, you guys, to Luke 22. We're looking at the first 30 verses, title of our study this morning, The Lord's Supper. We're going to look this morning at Jesus' final Passover dinner with his disciples, where he institutes, well, something that is the fulfillment of all the Passover pointed to. And that's his sacrifice for us and and symbolized in in the bread and the cup and the Lord's Supper. But before we do, track back with me for a moment. All this begins actually in Genesis 12, where God makes an unconditional covenant with a guy named Abraham. Unconditional means whatever Abraham did, God was still going to do his thing. He said, I'm going to give make you a great name. I'm going to give you a nation. I'm going to bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you. I'm going to, you know, in your seed, all the nations will be blessed. And he actually gives him five promises there that he says, I'm will and I will and I will and I will and I will. A little later in Genesis 15, some time's gone by and and Abraham's a little worried because he's like, hey, God, remember that whole promise of the great nation and the, you know, the seed and all that stuff? I don't have any children and I ain't getting any younger. And God says, look at the stars. If you could number them, if you can count them, so will your descendants be. And we're told that Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. My point in all of this is that God says, here's what I'm going to do. It's impossible, by the way, by the time it actually goes down and happens. But our God is a God of the impossible. He's someone who purposes, reveals, and then performs whatever he says he's going to do. Well, The story as it goes, of course, Abraham has a child and then another grandchild. And we work our way down to a guy named Joseph who is sold into slavery. And Joseph ends up down in the land of Egypt. And we're told that that God tells Abraham all the way back in Genesis 15 that, that his descendants would be slaves. They would be servants. They would be in bondage for 400 years in Egypt or in a land not their own. We know it to be Egypt because we know the rest of the story. So what happens is is that they go down, the children of Israel, during a time of famine, Joseph, of course, sold into slavery. Now he's risen to second in command in all of Egypt. The children of Israel are down there. There's only 70 of them when they go down. There are millions when they come out. But during this 430-year period, they're they're growing and expanding and and well there there's a prophecy of 400 years there's a, a fulfillment of 430 years that's cuz for 30 years Israel was blessed there in the land of Egypt then another pharaoh arose who didn't know Joseph who had rescued not just his own family, but all the Egyptians during the time of great famine. And so we have 430 years where they're down there, and then ultimately they come out. That brings us to the story that 
Jesus and his disciples are celebrating in Luke 22. It was the Passover. And the Passover was very simple in that God gave them instructions. He said, the death angel is going to pass through tonight. And I want you to take a lamb and I want you to slay the lamb and I want you to apply the blood, put it on the doorpost and the lintels of your house. And when the death angel passes through, he will pass over your house and spare your firstborn. That's the name Passover. So the first thing we learn about the Passover is it brought redemption. It brought life from the dead because every firstborn was doomed and destined to die. And it would only be by obeying the Lord's commands. And let's face it, if you were living at that time and, you know, you just painted the house and you come home and you tell your wife, hey, the Lord said we need to kill, kill a lamb and, and put the blood on the doorposts and the lintels of the house. Your wife's going to say that's not going to happen. We just painted. And but you, you understand that that it's not a command that makes a lot of sense. How can putting blood on the front of your house save your firstborn? You know how and why it worked? Because it's what God said to do. And God has always had a plan for man's redemption. And many say, well, that's absurd or that doesn't. How could Jesus dying on a cross rescue or redeem me from my sin? So they, they disregard it and, and they're just like, well, I don't believe it. Well, the bottom line is God has a plan to redeem fallen man. He rescues and redeems us and he does it his way. For them, it was the Passover. It brought freedom, but it also accomplished something else. It set them free so they could worship, serve, and feast unto the Lord. Those are the three things that, that Pharaoh was instructed. God wanted him to let the people go so that they could be accomplished. The picture is not just a negative, you know, you've got to let them go because they're in bondage and they're suffering and they're serving you, but no, a positive. I want them to feast with me. I want them to worship me. I want them to serve me. And there's a direct parallel to our experience in the Lord. We've been set free from the bondage and slavery of sin and Satan so that we can worship the Lord, so we can fellowship with the Lord, so we can serve the Lord. Well, we read here in chapter 22, verse 1, it was the feast of unleavened bread drew near, which is called Passover. And the chief priest and the scribes sought how they might kill him, for they feared the people. So we have the religious leaders plotting to have Jesus put to death. Then Satan entered Judas. Take note of that. It's important. We're going to come back to it. But in case I don't, you take note of it and spend some time later dwelling on it. Satan possessed Judas. He entered Judas, surnamed Iscariot, who was numbered among the twelve. So he went his way and conferred with the chief priests and captains how he might betray them to uh, him to them. And they were glad and agreed to give him money, so he promised and sought opportunity to betray him to them in the absence of the multitude. Their plan is they were going to see that Jesus was put to death, but they didn't want it to happen at the feast. And we mentioned in one of our recent studies that, that God's plan was that he would be sacrificed during the Passover celebration. Why? He is the fulfillment. Every lamb slain in a Passover feast pointed to the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And there's a glorious picture that develops in Exodus 12 as they celebrated that first Passover. They were instructed to take a lamb. Then a little later on, it says, take the lamb. And then it says, take your lamb. And there's one more, but consider these three with me because they really give us a picture of how people perceive Jesus. Those who believe in Jesus 
believe varying things about Jesus. Some believe he is a savior, one among many. And there are a lot of people today who go to Christian churches that say, well, we don't really buy the thing that Jesus is the way, the truth and the life. Well, they'll rarely quote the scripture because that's just too troubling. But they'll say, we don't think he's the only way to heaven. Well, what did he say? I'm the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the father but by me. I'm the resurrection and the life. I'm the door to the sheepfold. I'm the good shepherd. He never claimed to be a savior. He said he was the savior. So here's my point. If you believe Jesus is a savior, then you're like those people who believed he was like a lamb. But he's not just a lamb. He's the lamb. He's the lamb who takes away the sin of the world, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. A lamb, the lamb. Then it says, take your lamb. And this is so important. If you're going to snooze later, make sure you get this now. I know most of you learn a lot in these services. Some of you just wake up refreshed. Either's okay with me. God gives his loved ones rest. I mean, if you're so tired that you need to rest, I get that. But, but here's my point. Get, get this. Don't leave without this. You can believe that Jesus is a lamb and that is not sufficient. A savior? No, he is the savior. But you can say, I do believe that. And you can still not be saved. Why? Well, the demons know who Jesus is. They recognized him. Satan knows who Jesus is. He recognizes him. Are they saved? Of course not. It's not enough to believe he is the lamb. He must be your lamb. He must be your savior. He must be your sacrifice. And I hammer this regularly because I'm convinced that, that we're able to deceive ourselves. I'm convinced by the scripture of this, by the way. We're able to deceive ourselves into thinking that knowing about Jesus is the same as knowing Jesus. That's why we're exhorted to make our calling and election sure, to be sure we're in the faith, to, to be sure that we're sure that we don't just believe he's a or the, but he is our savior, my savior, your savior. Well, there's one more thing in that passage, Exodus 12. Take a lamb, take the lamb, take your lamb. Then it says they shall kill it at twilight. And that it's kind of surprising if you understand that these Passover feasts well, there would be as many as two million people. Now, that's what was going on even in Egypt. But in Israel later, in Jerusalem, the same thing could happen. Now, if you have two million people plus, and you use about one lamb for every 10 people, and that was the average, that means 200,000 lambs would be slain. So you would think if he says, take a and the and your, and then you shall kill them at twilight. Why does it say kill it at twilight? Because it is pointing to a hymn. Again, the Lamb of God, our Lord, our Savior, who takes away the sin of the world. Well, he's rejected by the religious leaders. He's betrayed by one of his closest associates and disciples, one who was a part of the 12, who was mentored by him, sent out by him, empowered. And Judas is such a tragic character in, in the scriptures because he was with Jesus personally. He preached the freedom that he never experienced himself. He preached that you could be a part of the coming kingdom, but he never entered into that kingdom himself. Jesus called him the son of perdition. He said when Judas died, he went to his own place. And that was not a happy place. He sold Jesus out for 30 pieces of silver. Here it just says they were glad and they agreed, verse 5, to give him money. But we know that Zechariah 11 verses 12 and 13 told us not only would Jesus be sold for 30 pieces of silver, but that that silver would be thrown in the house of the, of the, uh, the um, Lord and it would be used to buy a potter's field. 
And you know, the New Testament bears witness to all three realities. Judas comes back after betraying Jesus and he says, I betrayed innocent blood. It's shocking. Pilate will later say, I find no fault in this man. What sin has he done? I find no fault in this man. So Judas, he returns and he says, I betrayed innocent blood. And they're like, what's that to us? That's your problem. And so he throws the money on the floor of the temple. Exactly as Zachariah said would happen. Cast the, the, the coin in the, the house of the Lord. And then th these religious leaders, these hypocrites, they think, well, we can't put that money back in the treasury. I mean, it's blood money. No, we'll use it to buy a potter's field. Not realizing, I'm sure, they were fulfilling the scripture of Zechariah chapter 11, verses 12 and 13. And, and, and what a, a crazy picture for us. What, what an amazing hypocrisy and irony that here are these people sending an innocent man to his death because they're afraid of losing their power, their position, their place. They're sending Jesus to his death because he claims to be the son of God and savior of the world. Not for what he did, but for who he claimed to be. But they're worried about violating some small principle of the law where we can't use this money. It's blood money. I think it's what Jesus meant when he said they, they, they strain at a gnat and swallow a camel. Well, in any case, note this. Judas opened himself up to Satan. I, I drew your attention to it. It's back in verse three. I didn't want to pass over it. Satan entered Judas. And there's an interesting picture. It's, it's by a guy named Holman Hunt, I believe. And, and you've probably seen it at one point or another. It has another context entirely, but it, it makes my point perfectly. Holman never painted any doorknob on the outside of the painting. It shows Jesus knocking on the door. The door's supposed to be our heart. And one of his friends said, hey, you messed up. You forgot the doorknob. And he said, no, the, the door to the heart is on the inside of the door. It wasn't a mistake. It was intentional. And I would suggest to you in the very same way that only we can open our heart to the Lord. Only we can open our heart to the enemy of our souls. Satan couldn't just take control of Judas. Judas gave Satan control of him. If you're a believer, Satan can never control you, but he can lie to you. He can tempt you. He can test you. He can speak to and through you as he did Peter and Jesus had to rebuke him saying, get behind me, Satan. When Peter tried to say, hey, you're not going to have to go to the cross. No cross for you, Lord. In any case, the picture here is a horrific one. Judas, who had walked with the Lord and ministered for the Lord, now empowered by the prince of darkness. And he goes and he sells out his Lord for 30 pieces of silver. Then came the day of unleavened bread, verse 7, when the Passover must be killed. Take note with me. In verse 1, the Passover is a feast. In verse 7, the Passover is a lamb. The day came of unleavened bread when the Passover must be killed. So he sent Peter and John saying, go and prepare the Passover for us that we may eat. And they said to him, where do you want us to prepare he said to them, behold, when you've entered the city, a man will meet you carrying a pitcher of water. If we had more time and we're going slower, we'd spend time on each of these details. But let me just tell you up front that everything was prearranged by God. And it's very unusual to see men carrying pitchers of water. That was normally a woman's work. You may not like that in these days and age, but that's how it was in that day. And so he says, you'll be able to find the guy because he'll be carrying a pitcher of water. And then it says, when you see him, just follow him into the house he enters. And, and then you shall say to the master of the house, the teacher says to you, where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? 
He'll show you a large furnished upper room there, make ready. And they found it just as he said to them, and they prepared the Passover. The point here, at least to me, is that everything was prepared down to the, the, the smallest detail. Our Lord made preparation. He told them what to expect, how to find the place, how to set up the scene. They already knew how to prepare for the Passover feast itself. They just needed the place. And he went and he prepared everything ahead of time and then sent them to enjoy all that. It reminds me that he promises his disciples on this very night that he would go and prepare a place for them. And he says, and if I go, I'll come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. In John 17, he prays, Father, I want them to be with me and see the glory I had with you before the world began. Where's the place he's preparing for us? It's there in the Father's house. What are we going to do when that trumpet sounds and we find ourselves in his presence? We're going to cast our crowns at his feet. We're going to fall on our face before him and worship him. And then we're going to celebrate the marriage supper of the Lamb. Even as they're preparing for Passover, he's preparing now for that time where we feast with him in the coming kingdom. Well, in any case, he knows this is their last meal together before his arrest. They don't get that. He's been trying to tell them. And for the past six months, again and again, as they headed toward Jerusalem, he'd say, we're going up. I'll be handed over to the chief priests and scribes. I'll be crucified, but I'll rise again the third day. And in the beginning, they'd say, what do you think he means by all that? I mean, he must be talking figuratively. I mean, how could he rule? How could he reign if he's going to suffer and die? They couldn't put it together. But note this in verse 14. When the hour had come, he sat down and the 12 apostles with him. And he said to them with fervent desire, I have desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. He mentions one more time he was about to suffer. They don't say anything about it. They don't address it. They don't deal with it. They just disregard it. Why? They couldn't understand it. And at this point, they're no longer even considering it. But he says, I'm not going to eat this Passover again until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Now, if the original Passover brought freedom from death and freedom to serve and, and uh, you know, freedom from bondage, freedom to fellowship, freedom to worship, well, well certainly that's what the Lord's Supper is, is meant to point us to, that Jesus' sacrifice for us means we're no longer slaves of sin and death. We're, we're no longer destined to separation. And it means we can worship acceptably. We're accepted in Christ Jesus. It means that we have fellowship with the Father through His Son, Christ Jesus. It means that we can serve acceptably. Everything that He's planned and purposed for us becomes a reality in this new relationship with Christ. But when He talks about celebrating the Passover in the future, He says, I'll not no longer eat of it until it's fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Well, what could He mean by that? Well, some people trip on this, and I want to make sure you don't, and, and it's this simple. There will be another temple. We know that. There'll be a millennial temple. During the time of the millennial, some are saying, well, why would you need a temple? And what's the point of sacrifice if it was all pointing to Jesus in the first place? Well, it's really for the same reasons they, they sacrificed in the first place. You see, the Old Testament covenant, the covenant of law, we started talking about the covenant God made with Abraham, an unconditional covenant, later a covenant with Moses. It's a covenant of law, where it's if you will, I will. If you don't, watch out. And, and so it's a whole different thing. 
And so under that whole covenant, there were a series of feasts and festivals and sacrifices, morning and evening and monthly, and then, you know, various yearly feasts and festivals. All of those were pointing to Jesus. So when we get into the millennium where we're told we'll rule and reign with Jesus on this earth, when that time comes, those who are celebrating these feasts and festivals in Jerusalem, they will be doing it in the very same way we're going to celebrate communion today. It will be looking back at the cross. It will be acknowledging his sacrifice. It's not a substitute for it. It is no longer a, a prelude to it. No, it's just, it's just an acknowledgement of it. And, uh, and it's actually a beautiful picture if you think about it. Spring is here. Summer's not far away. There'll be lots of barbecues. And, and unless you're a vegetarian, you like me are looking forward to all of that. And you need to know that when they would slay those lambs, they weren't just bleeding them and applying the blood. No, they were eating the lamb. They were barbecuing the thing. So it smelled good to God and it smelled good to them and it nourished and encouraged and created a, a fellowship among them. So the feast, the festivals, and the Passover specifically is fulfilled in Jesus, but will be celebrated in the future. Now, the Passover he celebrated with them would have been modeled after the, the, the Passover they had been celebrating since they came out of bondage in Egypt. It would begin with the host of the Passover feast blessing those who were gathered together and blessing the cup. Then they would pass it around and everyone would drink of the first cup. The wine itself was certainly fermented, but well watered down. There was no thought that they were going to get drunk, but they were going to enjoy the fruit of the vine. The table would be set. The Passover lamb would be put there. The unleavened bread, the bitter herbs. There would be a sauce of dates and figs and raisins with vinegar. And they would dip and eat and they would pass another cup. And then the children would ask the question, what makes this day different than any other day? How come on those days we do these things, but on this day we only eat this? This would provide opportunity to teach the next generation what God had done for them in freeing them the first time. And of course, in pointing them ultimately to the freedom that we find in our Lord and Savior Jesus. So uh, another cup is passed after the, the um, unleavened bread and Passover lamb was eaten. A third cup would be passed. It's called the cup of blessing. Next came the fourth cup. It's called the cup of Hallel or joy. And by four cups, even of diluted wine, people are getting kind of happy. And, uh, and then they would recite Psalm 115 through 118. These were Hallel Psalms. They were worship Psalms. You should read them sometime. A fifth would be partaken of sometime, not always. It's called the great Hallel. And they would go back to Psalm 113 and read that to Psalm 118 or recite it. So, so understand, this is what they're doing. They're feasting with the Lord. They're tasting the bitter herbs that remind us of the bitterness of what happened and what brought them out of the land of Egypt. They're partaking of the Passover lamb to remember that they had to eat the lamb, not just slay it and apply the blood, but eat it. So they had strength for the journey ahead. And now he takes the cup and he gives thanks. Verse 17. And he says, take and divide it among yourself. For I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes again. He's saying, there will be a day. I will feast and fellowship with you again, but not until the kingdom of God comes. He took bread. He gave thanks. He broke it and gave it to them saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Luke's gospel does not contain the part of the Last Supper where Jesus washed the disciples' feet. That's here in John 13. 
Jesus got up from the meal, it says, and took off his outer clothing and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Now, for as far back as the disciples would have remembered, every year they celebrated the Passover feast with their families, and they would remember as the leader or the patriarch of the family washed his hands, signifying cleansing. Then he would break the bread or the matzah, and that bread was a picture of the sustenance God had given his children when they had no food. Now at the Last Supper, when Jesus, instead of washing his own hands before the breaking of the bread, washed the feet of his disciples, did they understand why he did it? Instead of a ritual hand washing that depicted us becoming clean in order to commune with the Lord, the Lord himself actually washed them to make them clean. And they, forevermore, were clean and could commune and fellowship with him. The Calvary Road is a ministry of Calvary Chapel Chico, and you can visit our website, ccchico.com, or download the CC Chico app to contact us and listen to other studies from Pastor Sam. You can also listen to The Calvary Road as a daily podcast by visiting thecalvaryroad.com. We'd love to hear from you. And until next time, may you find grace and peace as your journey takes you down the Calvary Road. And your grace.